Welcome. It's Thursday, October 14th, 2021, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and James White Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. I'm Russell Berman, director of the Working Group. The Working Group publishes regular commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, go to podcasts, and you'll find Caravan Notebook. You can subscribe to any and all of the Hoover podcasts, by the way, including The Grumpy Economist with John Cochran, The Libertarian with Victor Davis Hanson, The Pacific Century with Misha Oslin and John Yu, and Goodfellas with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Alain Bithani, who is speaking with us from Beirut, Lebanon. An economic and financial expert, Alain served as Director General of the Ministry of Finance in Lebanon from 2000 to 2020. He reconstructed the financial accounts of Lebanon starting 1993 until 2020, and he led the tax transparency program there. He received the United Nations Award for Improving Tax Services and Transparency and was named Commandeur de l'Ordre du Cedre and Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, for his distinguished achievements and his relentless fight against corruption and delinquency in the state. He's also the founder of the Citizen Foundation. Alain has also written an important essay entitled The Origin of the Crisis in the Lebanese Banking Sector, which we have published on the website of the working group at Hoover. If you go to hoover.org and search for Bifani, you'll get right there. In fact, I have also just Googled Hoover and Bifani, and that works too. Lebanon today faces many challenges, shortages in gasoline, unreliable electricity, sometimes for just a few hours a day, and scarcity in medical supplies. Many Lebanese survive only thanks to remittances from relatives abroad, and professionals, especially in the academic and medical sector, are leaving the country. Add to this the destruction caused by the massive explosion in the port of Beirut in August 2020, against the backdrop of long-term problems with political stalemate and economic mismanagement. Alain's essay provides an insightful description of the extensive corruption of the banking sector, which is at the heart of the Lebanese crisis. His account starts at the end of the long Lebanese civil war in 1990 and the Taif Accords, and he traces developments nearly to today. There's a lot of history and politics in the essay, too much to review all of it in our discussion today, but we can hit on some key elements and talk about the current situation. Alain, welcome. Thank you so much, Russell. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, there's a lot going on in Lebanon. We're eager to learn a lot. You've had an insider's view of Lebanese politics and especially the banking sector. For our listeners, what are the key issues that have contributed to the ongoing crisis? I would say that the ongoing crisis has its roots in the model that was built at the beginning of the 90s, which relies on attracting massive inflows permanently into the economy at a very high cost. While modest growth was achieved, and this growth was not creating jobs anyway, and productivity was on a steep downward trend, and governance was worsening until it reached record lows. To illustrate how much jobs were not created, even when we saw the peak of growth during the uh, world crisis in 2008-2009, 
Lebanon was growing by more than 10%, but growth, uh, but jobs were only growing by 0.5%. There is also obviously the political system without proper checks and balances. And in this political system, responsibilities are not assigned at all. And a proper example of that is the uh, issue, the tragic issue of the uh, Beirut port explosion, where until now we have no idea who was in charge, who was responsible, and basically uh, who is to be uh, questioned about what happened. And uh, the other factor that is very important is the easy money. The inflows that were massive because of the system that was put in place and sometimes blind international support, like when we had those donor conferences without conditionalities, made it even worse because, you know, easy money teaches people to uh, wrongdoing. In, in, the, in the use of the public money. And then corruption is embedded in this system from the beginning. For instance, I can tell you that the, the initial idea was to bring the warlords around the table while providing them with public money uh, in order for them to accept to sit at the table. And that was only the beginning. Once uh, uh, one of the plans that I prepared in uh, 2013, for instance, was about lowering the cost of maintaining macro stability, boosting productivity and create valuable jobs and improve the governance. But of course, nothing happened. And yet another effort was lost because of the unwillingness of the political elite. And then people believing that Lebanon cannot be reformed is a very important element. People are very afraid of change. This elite managed and succeeded in scaring people uh, by telling them that any change would come to the detriment of their groups. So the people have been used to accepting anything. And, you know, the convicted thieves and criminals in this system, instead of being thrown in jail, they remain in power because people believe that nothing will change anyway. Because if you get rid of one, you will have two others. And on top of that, one cannot dismiss the regional context. You know, no stability, the rise of extremism, and Lebanon being used as a battleground uh, permanently by various uh, uh, stakeholders. The combination of these elements uh, led to the drop of inflows and and the combination of other elements also, um, global elements, led to the drop of inflows starting in 2011. What are those elements? Well, for instance, the fall of the oil prices at that time, the beginning of the Syrian crisis, the withdrawal of Arab investments, and many uh, other elements like that, led to a negative balance of payment in Lebanon, which was a premiere, and uh, we, we, at the end, reached the uh, year 2016 with a government that was not able to tap international markets any, anymore. And the central bank that started criminal operations that were called at that time uh, financial engineering. And uh, finally, in 2020, the ability of the political and financial mafia to sabotage the rescue plan that we prepared 
and throw the losses on the population instead of having those who benefited most from the system uh, contribute was uh, the final catastrophe. They basically want to solve the whole issue through the impoverishment of the population. But even if it happens, it will not be enough because the losses are so huge that we cannot imagine in which situation we're going to put the Lebanese. Talk a little bit about this impoverishment of the population. The powerful insiders are often referred to as the cartel, and they've grown rich. But the Lebanese middle class, it's lost its wealth. Uh, uh, what are the financial and social consequences? Who's winning and who's lo losing? Well, um, if we want to look at um, you know, what, what happened since then, um, those who are losing are obviously the Lebanese altogether. I mean, in this story, those who are paying the big price are the citizens uh, who are receiving money in Lebanese pounds because of the massive depreciation. And it is depositors who are getting heavy haircuts right at left and center. The Lebanese middle class that you referred to is the biggest loser in this very sad story. It has been targeted since the beginning of the Ta'if era. And um, basically, I, I wrote many articles about that in the 90s. And then when I was at the ministry, uh, but the reason is that this class was making Lebanon so special in the region. It was the productive uh, class that made Lebanon a productive, a productive country at that time. Uh, we had a vibrant private sector, whereas the whole region is and was and is still about government-driven economies. A true political involvement existed in Lebanon thanks to this middle class. It had the ability to say no, to vote against the powerful people in the system. And it had the freedom of expression. In the 90s, the local and regional elites wanted to get rid of this strong counterpower, and they systematically demolished the middle class and the counterpowers among which the syndicates that were taken over by the clans, the public education, the productivity of many sectors that were hit badly, the media that became dominated by low-level soldiers of fortune, and the impoverishment of the population through a very harsh wealth concentration process. And they wanted this to have their things, uh, to have things their way. And now the central bank governor, for instance, and the bankers are left stealing the deposits to protect shareholders from taking their losses. Shareholders are often from the political elite and they were allowed to smuggle their money abroad and the remaining depositors are being stolen through permanent haircuts. For instance, anybody who wants to withdraw dollars from the bank accounts, knowing that the uh, deposits are uh, dollarized at more than 78%, Anybody who needs to access this, this uh, money has to buy Lebanese pounds at a rate of 3,900 and rebuy dollars at a rate of 21,000 today. This tells you how huge the haircuts that are imposed on depositors are. And the middle class is also suffering from the massive depreciation of the Lebanese pound as the financial and political elites want to solve the crisis, as I said, through poverty. But even if they are left to, to try this criminal way, it is too big to solve like that. The financial consequences 
or massive wealth concentration uh, in dirty hands. And you can imagine the consequences in terms of lawlessness in, in the country. Uh, it is uh, about a lost credibility and trust in the banking system. And uh, we have a long-term financial vacuum and zombie banks that can remain for a very long time in the, uh, in the picture, excluding others, which means no investment, which means that bankers save their personal funds but destroy their own institutions, and which also leads to massive emigration. Because in Lebanon, the usual adjustment variable is emigration. People just leave. So the country loses skills and talents irreversibly today, and it's difficult to raise revenue. So we have a problem in public finance also. And we have a society divided with no bridges among groups. And we saw today, for instance, people fighting in the streets again. And the middle class used to secure uh, those, those bridges that I'm uh, talking about. We are seeing the country fall into poverty with potential chaos and security issues, such as the ones we saw today, state institutions falling apart, and basically the dismantling of the society and the state. So the winners are the few who concentrated the wealth in their hands during the three past decades, and who combined political power and wealth, and who multiplied the gains through, for instance, the governor's tricks uh, called uh, financial engineering, and who put their money away while leaving the system in total collapse. They got fortunes, they made fortunes, and they want to retain their political dominance on top of that. But over whom? Who's going to stay? Lebanon and what it used to represent, and the vast majority of the Lebanese, in Lebanon, intramuros, and abroad, because it's the first time the diaspora loses so much, are the, are, are the losers. So after a long political crisis, Lebanon has a new prime minister, Najib Mikati. Um, do you expect any reforms? Do you expect any changes? Um, can I just uh, come back to the previous question, if you don't mind, Russell, Please. because I, I did not answer you about uh, the cartel. Um, the, this cartel you were, you were talking about is um, basically made of a few parties who were able to uh, take over the whole system in Lebanon, including all public institutions. And thus, anything that we can imagine in terms of reform goes against their interests. Um, so coming to uh, um, the new prime minister, Najib Mikati is prime minister for the third time, and he was a minister of public works and transportation before. This is an advantage because he's experienced and well-established, but it's also a great disadvantage because the population does not want this elite anymore. And he's tied with the interests of the political clans, and he's part of them, and he is very connected to what we call in Lebanon the bankocracy. Now, will he be able to reinvent himself and help the system transition towards something new that looks like a decent state? For now, it looks more like business as usual and state of denial. Each and every reform means taking away something from the clans as they have taken over public spaces and they will resist those reforms. Now, any serious reform process has to start with acknowledging the reality of the losses in the system and distribute them as fairly as possible 
while launching a massive reform agenda in parallel. This team does not seem to be willing to do that. They deal with a financial elite that has the presumptuousness of being able to fool the world and convince everybody of their absurd approach and criminal proposals. And they are willing to go along with this elite uh, and with what this elite has in mind, which is unbearable poverty for most of the Lebanese or emigration in order to preserve their booty. The the Pandora Papers um, have been published internationally. They show uh, documentations of offshore wealth in many countries, including Lebanon. Um, are there surprises here about Lebanon? Well, the unfortunate truth is that there are never any repercussion due to such major scandals in Lebanon. When I gave a press conference in 2018 about the financial accounts of the country that we reconstructed, I took the risk of exposing the whole elite, and there was enough said to topple the whole system at that time. But nothing happened. And everything we saw after that led to practically nothing. People have a very short-term memory, a short memory. And then some will tell you, well, it's, it's always been like that. Whatever we do, those who will replace them will be the same. And this is obviously not true. I mean, the answer is, um, or, or, or if you want, for those who keep saying, well, we didn't hear about all this at that time, the answer is that, of course, you were told about that. But the problem is that you listen episodically. And honestly, no surprise at all to see Riyad Salami in the Pandora's papers. I mean, he's actually everywhere. Uh, the fact that nobody in Lebanon asks for clarification says it all. Until the next uprising, um, in the meantime, not a parliamentarian, nor a judge, nor the Minister of Finance for tax purposes is asking about such things. We've had the Panama Papers in the past. Nobody was asked to provide any information. Now the Pandora and, and, and so many in, things in between that are directly, you know, criminal acts, uh, but there's nothing uh, that is being done or nobody asking. And there has been way more than Pandora in terms of criminal behavior, um, but things take time. It's not only that they take time, it's also that we lost a lot when it comes to the rule of law. In Lebanon, it is a fact, for instance, that ministers have been placed above the law from the beginning of the Second Republic, the militia lords were invited to the Council of Ministers' table, as I said, as ministers, and given this sort of immunity. Rafik Hariri at that time thought that this would get things done, and he was wrong. The ruling elite imposed the idea that ministers uh, and above, and presidents, are beyond the reach of the judiciary, and that the parliamentarian committee would judge them if needed. But since parliament was mostly about militia clans, they would not come any close to going against their own people who are using public money to enrich themselves, but also their clans. Also, the judiciary was destroyed with vacuum or with corruption. Anyone who would want to do her job or his job would come under massive fire. This was true throughout my tenure in the public administration too. Although ministers were given all the power to the detriment of director generals, 
they would still make your life hell if you insisted on doing your job, only doing your job. This system that we have targets honest people and drag them in the mud because it has its own mafia logic. If you work for the public good, it means for them that you are not working for them, that you are working for the others. And the others are enemies, so you are the enemy. There is no such thing as working for your country in these people's minds. And working with them, of course, is a daily nightmare. Uh, for our listeners, you mentioned uh, Riyad Salami uh, mentioned in the Pandora Papers. He's the central bank governor. Uh, in addition, this point of ministers being above the law is a crucial factor. It's really impeded the investigation into the, um, into the uh, Beirut port explosion. Isn't that correct? Absolutely, it is correct. What we're seeing today, for instance, is a few uh, ex-ministers who do not want to go to the judge because the judge basically has asked them to uh, uh, come uh, come um, uh, for the for the questioning, and uh, and we are seeing uh, people in the streets uh, firing and shouting and yelling against the judge because he's trying to do his job. Now. Um, Without going into the specifics of this uh, uh, issue, it is the case uh, that in Lebanon since the 1990s, no minister or if, I mean, taking, taking uh, uh, two, two exceptions uh, from, uh, from the basket, but apart from that, ministers are usually not uh, taken to courts and uh, they are using the existence in the, uh, in the texts of a special tribunal at parliament, which obviously is made for high treason. It is not made for uh, theft of public funds uh, to say that, well, ministers are above uh, normal courts and they only um, stand uh, uh, in front of a, of a parliamentarian court. The, the Taif Accords uh, tried to end the Lebanese civil war by calling for a disarming of the various militia. But Hezbollah, the Shia militia, was able to keep its weapons and has now grown into a formidable force. What's, its role in he what's the role of Hezbollah in Lebanon, Lebanese domestic affairs now? The Taif process uh, is full of items that go against the Taif principles. We had the constitution but we chose, or some people chose, to take parts of the constitution and forget about the others. As a matter of fact, this constitution was effectively never implemented. Only the bits to the advantage of the most powerful people in the game were implemented. Initially, these people were the closest to the Syrians, like Beri and Hariri. For a long time, Hezbollah, tried to stay away from internal affairs and concentrate on building its military power. And it is weapons, uh, it's weapons. During those years, the looting of the public funds was made by the other parties and clans who were at the government, who in turn would not interfere in the military operations of Hezbollah. But since uh, 2005 and after the assassination of Hariri and after the 2006 war, Hezbollah had to become part, although a small part, of Lebanese governments, even if it was not really willing to do so uh, at the beginning. And since it acquired this big weight, 
it was often used by other clans to arbitrate between them. Until Hezbollah became a full internal player on top of his regional agenda. Um, and having local allies and local foes. And although I suspect that the party worries a lot about the disaggregation of the economy and society, they are very keen on keeping alliances that offer them an internal umbrella. So they are not in a position to fight the cartel at all. And maybe they're not even willing to do that. Put simply, they are the only heavily organized body in the political spectrum, but they are not fighting corruption. None of the parties from the system has been ever serious about fighting corruption. Alain, what would you like to see from the international community, whether from the United States or from France or from the IMF or someone else? Can the international community help solve these problems? Yes, the international community can help a great deal already by not accepting half measures, by not providing money without proper conditionalities, by making sure that any support goes to the population of Lebanon and is not hijacked by the elite, by doing the proper diagnostic without accepting what our elite says about the small losses in the system or the small things that uh, we need to do before the whole system starts working again. And the international community, the USA, France, the IMF, Europe, anybody, should certainly not accept corrupt individuals and criminals as interlocutors. In a few words, they have to give the Lebanese a chance. They cannot keep on saying, this is the elite that Lebanon chose and we have to deal with it. Because this elite has taken over the system and within one system, it is very difficult for the Lebanese to change this elite. It has to change the whole system. This population is taken hostage by criminals, and the criminals should not be supported anymore. Accepting the idea that the Lebanese are unable to come up with anything better than the existing goes along the, this mafia's interests. The Lebanese, especially the youth, are able to build a bright future and they should be given a chance. And if it takes sanctions to put the existing thugs on the side, fine, why not? After all, they are polluting the whole world with their corruption, dirty money, money laundering, tax evasion, encouraging bad behavior. You cannot expect new elites to emerge if the hijackers are still in control. When Lebanon will get rid of them, it will have its normal process of regenerating elites. And only then will the diaspora involvement become meaningful and confidence be recovered and the virtuous process can start. Okay, one last question, Alain. There are supposed to be elections in Lebanon next year. Do you have any predictions or hopes for positive change from the elections? Um, what I would say, Russell, is that it would be a big mistake to imagine that elections held and managed by this political and financial elite can lead to significant change. It will be already a lot if opposition groups manage to exist at parliament. You cannot play by their rules to defeat them. And such an electoral process will provide new legitimacy to the clans. And many abroads are unfortunately waiting for that to re-engage with them cynically. Nevertheless, it's a good exercise to challenge them on every ground, including through their version of elections. 
Change requires the population to be freed and criminals to be forced out of office. If what was needed was a change in policies, elections could have been enough. But what is required here is a change of the whole twisted system. And its own version of elections can certainly not be enough for that. But they should not be too confident. I mean, if the Lebanese are tired by so much hardship over half a century, they have not said their last word, in my modest opinion. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot. I wish you and Lebanon good fortune in this very, very challenging and difficult situation. To our listeners, please read Alain's in-depth discussion in his essay on the Hoover website, hoover.org, and search for Bifani, B-I-F-A-N-I. You can follow Hoover's working group on the Middle East and the Islamic world at www.hoover.org caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at hooverinst, I-N-S-T. And I'm Russell Berman on Twitter, Russell Berman SF. Please listen to the Caravan podcast later this month when my Caravan colleague Cole Bunzel will return with a guest. And I'll be back later this month as well. I hope you'll be listening in. Goodbye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.